and welcome to the latest Funds Fan Podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, your host. I am the Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. Later on in the podcast is an interview with Hugh Young, the Veteran Fund Manager at Aberdeen. And just to be clear, this is an interview that has been in the diary for a while and was set up well before the reports of Aberdeen and Interactive Investor being in talks. Among the topics discussed in the interview... Hugh gives his outlook for the Asia-Pacific region in 2022 by naming uh, reasons to be cheerful and reasons to be fearful. Hugh also um, runs through the investment case for China, which has been a poor performing market this year on the back of unexpected political interventions into its technology and education industries. Hugh explains how he's been taking advantage of that volatility in the Chinese equity markets during the summer months. But before all that, uh, myself and Tom Bailey, the ETF's editor at Interactive Investor, are going to chat through a couple of news items related to funds and investment trusts. Tom, let's start off with uh, interest rates. We recently uh, published a uh, piece on ii.co.uk from an external contributor on how uh, investors can prepare their portfolios for potential interest rate rises, which some commentators um, expect to materialise in the uh, coming months in order to keep a lid on rising levels of inflation. Tom, could you talk through what was identified in that um, piece in regards to the interest rate winners in terms of shares and sectors? Sure. So it's when kind of think about interest rate rises and, and how it affects stocks, it's important to kind of break down the different sectors and look at different sectors and how they react in different ways. Um, so one obvious uh, example of 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 a, of a sector reacting to interest rate rises would be utilities. So utilities often pay a consistent and stable dividend. And so in a time when interest rates are low, uh, and so therefore kind of yields on bonds are low, investors often favour holding utilities for that income stream. But of course, then the opposite is true, that when rates start to rise, the relative attractiveness of utilities decreases. And so you'll, you'll, you'll see that in the performance of the share price. Um, you know, so... In terms of benefiting from a rate rise, though, uh, banks are a good example. So higher rates uh, tend to mean a higher spread for, for bank lending and borrowing, and this improves profit margins. Um, but then there's also another factor we have to kind of be careful with uh, kind of uh, causation and correlation uh, uh, and uh, so and casualty. So the whole raising, right, raising rates environment, obviously, is the sectors that benefit historically. Is it because the raising rates themselves or is it part of a wider kind of general outlook? So when rates are rising, it tends to be that economic growth is strong, right? And therefore, so cyclical industries or, or manufacturing, they also tend to do well when rates are rising. But it's not necessarily because of the rates rising, it's it's because of the general broader outlook. So obviously, we kind of got to be careful there not to not to assume that the rate, rising rates themselves are the cause of, of the strong performance of certain sectors, um, but rather, you know, as these things are often correlated together. Uh, and, and so I guess the, the final point on this would be, though, of course, this is then assuming that rate rises aren't happening too quickly and that a policy mistake is happening, in which case kind of the cyclical uh, uh, kind of aspect of rate rises would, 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 would struggle. But anyway, when it comes to funds and investment trusts, uh, there's also winners and losers. Uh, bonds are the other loser here, uh, right, Carl? Yes, uh, bonds, which have you know thrived in the low interest rate environment, they do look to be the most vulnerable asset class on paper. As if and when interest rates rise, bond yields will also likely head higher 
Um, and if that plays out, it'll result in capital losses for bondholders. As when yields rise, bond prices fall. Um, bond prices and bond yields, they have an inverse relationship. And it's government bonds that of all the types of bonds that look the most vulnerable, as they are perceived to be the safest type of bonds. They're highly prized, and as a result, they carry expensive valuations in terms of the bond's price, and they also have low yields to boot. Although it would be a mistake to write off all bonds, um, some bond funds and uh, multi-asset funds, they have exposure to inflation-linked bonds that are issued by governments. Um, If and when interest rates rise and with rising levels of inflation, these bonds will actually perform well in that environment, in theory. Um, And also um, some alternative investments, such as uh, infrastructure, are also a good way of building some protection into a diversified portfolio. Um, The trouble is, though, that interest rate rises are uh, far from guaranteed. Um, the, The general consensus seems to be that there might be one interest rate rise in the UK in the next couple of months, um, after all, the, the base rate is 0.1%. But across the pond in the US, it doesn't look like that, that its central bank, the Federal Reserve, will be increasing uh, rates anytime soon. Um, and one of, the, one of the reasons why is because interest rate rises um, usually signal that all is well in the economy. And even before anyone has heard about this uh, new COVID-19 variant, There were concerns over the strength of the post-pandemic global economic recovery. And a week or so ago, there was an interesting piece of commentary put out by Ariel Bezalel, who is Head of Strategy for Fixed Income at Jupiter, who argued this very point that if interest rates do rise, then the risk is that it will derail the global economic recovery. Yeah, it's interesting because this is literally just days before the the new variant uh, kind of fears emerged. Uh, that kind of he put out this note warning the potential risk of a rate of a, a rate rise is happening too early or quickly, because uh, obviously as 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 Bezalel says in in the piece, um, the global economy kind of has shows signs of losing kind of pace in its recovery. Um, I, I think one of the interesting points he made was uh, kind of looking towards China. Obviously, China's got some problems in its economy now in terms of trouble stemming from the country's property market, but also a few other things, um, and so obviously. China is a, is a big importer, um, and so he he looks at the data in Central and Eastern Europe, and kind of said that they already was showing signs of a slowdown, uh, and that's kind of an important uh, bellwether uh, because the region is obviously uh, is a is a hub of uh, Western manufacturing, which often sells to China. So if you see Chinese demand starting to slow, you'll see it there first. We are now going to run through three funds in Interact Investor's Super 60 list that have recently been placed under formal review by Interact Investor's analyst team. And those three funds are Linzel Train, Japanese Equity, TM Crooks, European Special Situations, and CFP, SDL, UK, Buffetology. So the Linzel Train, Japanese Equity uh, Fund and also TM Crooks, European Special Situations, both were under performance, uh, under review, formal review due to their performance concerns, right? Yes, that's correct, Tom. So, um, so let's start off with Lindsay Train Japanese Equity. Um, this is a highly concentrated fund with around twenty holdings, and um, you know, under the management of Michael Lindsay since two thousand and four, it has outperformed um, since he took over. Um, you know, quite quite significantly, but its short term numbers, and um, particularly its three year performance. It's notably lagged um, both its benchmark and um, peers. 
And with that in mind, Interact Investors uh, fund analyst team believe that it's prudent to uh, take a closer look at that fund's performance and assess whether or not to keep the fund in the Super 60. And then moving on to crooks, European special situations. The analysts at Interact Investor also have performance concerns. Um, The fund managed by Richard Pease, who, like Michael Linzel, is a well-respected and highly experienced fund manager, has been going through a period of um, underperformance. It's underperformed its sector and the MSCI Europe XUK index over one, three and five years. Uh, And with both of those funds, the analyst team will examine the investment processes, you know, the the detractors for performance, um, how how the funds are currently positioned and and the outlook for both of those funds before uh, coming to a final decision over whether they'll be uh, retained or not in the Super 60. It was interesting to see the justification for uh, the Buffetology Fund being put under formal review because this wasn't uh, anything to do with uh, short-term performance concerns or anything like that. Instead, the fund, uh, kind of the, the concern cited for putting the fund under review was uh, resources and the size of the assets. Yes, that's correct, Tom. So with CFP, SDL, UK Buffetology, the uh, Interact Investor Analyst team have concerns over um, key person risk as a key Ashworth Lord. Um, he was the sole uh, fund, man- fund manager on the fund. Um, he took on the responsibility of another mandate um, in June, um, the Free Spirit Fund, uh, following the departure of um, Andrew Va- Andrew Vaughan. At present, um, there's no clear succession plan in place for uh, the Buffetology Fund. Uh, you know, there's no uh, named deputy manager on the fund, um, which was highlighted as a concern by Interact Investors analysts. And in, in addition, um, the increase in the size of the fund is also a concern. Um, when the fund was initially placed on the Super 60 list um, at the launch of the rated list in January 2019, its assets were around 600 million. Today, those assets have grown to over 1.7 billion. And the average uh, market capitalization of the companies held in the fund has therefore also grown. Uh, and so the analyst team are going to look closely and uh, analyze the size of the fund to assess whether it restricts the fund manager from investing in small cap and micro cap shares, which were a prominent part of the fund when it was placed on the Super 60 um, nearly three years ago. And also, as I've just mentioned, the key person risk will also be assessed in the formal review. We will, of course, keep customers updated and let you know when the analyst team have made their final decision on ii.co.uk. The formal review process takes up to three months. And a fund that was under review, uh, which has kept its place, is uh, Artemis Monthly Distribution. So this fund was put under review on 13th of September 2021, following a co-manager change. And it was announced um, in late November, following uh, the completion of the formal review of the fund, that it will be retained as Interact Investors Analysts were satisfied with the manager change, and also they were satisfied that there has been no changes to how the fund invests in terms of its investment process and investment objective. The next part of our podcast is our fund manager interview. I'm pleased to be joined by Hugh Young, who has been investing in Asian equity markets for over 30 years, so has seen a fair number of market cycles. 
Before we focus on the Aberdeen Standard Asia Focus Trust, I'd like to start off with China. In the summer, there was a lot of volatility following, following the unexpected political interventions into the technology and education industries. Has this made China a riskier place to invest? Now, that's a very good question, Carl. I, I think in many senses it's made it less risky um, because we've now seen the risk occur um, and how China has developed uh, has been really to be gung-ho for development uh, and leaving regulation to lag behind. Uh, so what we saw this year was regulation coming in. Regulation, uh, to my mind, is quite is quite necessary and, and quite healthy. Now, of course, it has changed the nature of some of these companies in the education sphere uh, and 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 in the technology sphere in particular, uh, and and damaged the businesses, particularly of the education companies, uh, and, and as far as the, some of the IT companies and internet companies has turned them more into utilities. But a lot of that is reflected in the share prices. Uh, so I think we've seen the risks come to fruition, uh, which uh, which means uh, I'd say the, the market is, as a result, less risky now that we've seen the risks occur. Uh, but of course, there, there, there risks lie in every market, not not just China. Um, uh, but it's caused us to be a, a little more optimistic on some of the internet companies in particular, uh, where we've seen the share prices fall to to reflect the fact that they've become more utilities than go-go growth stocks of old. Yes, I read that you bought into the dip, um, topping up exposure to Tencent. Was this a case of, as you've just mentioned, taking advantage of the share price weakness? And what's your outlook for Tencent and China's technology companies in general? Do you expect there to be further political crackdowns in the future? No, I think we've seen the bulk of the political crackdowns. Um, clearly, China is very much ruled by the central state and the and the Communist Party. Um, and first and foremost uh, amongst their priorities is retaining the goodwill of the people. Uh, and, and what we've seen over the years, not not dissimilar from other economies, is the rich getting richer and disparities. Uh, increasing, so the party has cracked down on some of that, and and we might well see some more of that going uh, going on. But I don't think, uh, in fact, I'm convinced China China has not killed off uh, enterprise and innovation. And I would argue that in many ways China has been one of the most innovative and enterprising. Uh, of countries as far as technology is concerned. I mean, the the amazing transformation we've seen over the last 10 years and innovation, and in fact, China's leading in some of these technologies. And I, I think that will continue. But will we get the super profits that we've had in the past? Uh, no, um, I don't think we will. Um, and again, that's reflected in the valuations, which is which is why we've been a lot more comfortable adding to shares at these prices. Now, moving on to the Aberdeen Standard Asia Focus Trust, the portfolio invests in smaller companies. Could you run through how the trust invests and uh, what are the key qualities that you look for in a business? What, what we're looking for here is just strong long-term growth coming from a, a focused portfolio of smaller companies. Um, 
we're not driven by benchmarks or anything like that. We're very, very different from benchmarks. We're purely stock-driven, um, regardless of uh, markets uh, and so on. So we have about 65, just under 65 stocks within the portfolio, um, long-term investments, uh, seeking long-term growth. And, and, and what we're looking for in companies is, is, is something we call quality. And by quality, we mean, is this a decent business to invest in uh, on a five, even 10-year view? And we've had one or two of our holdings for 20 years or more uh, in the portfolio. Do we trust the management, which is key? So that brings into uh, uh, into question sort of uh, governance um, uh, and, and, and long-term focus, all the elements of e, e, S, and G that we've really concentrated on since day one of the trust 25 or more years ago. Uh, and, and then from a financial point of view, uh, we have a strong focus on balance sheets because for small companies in particular, uh, when the going gets tough for external reasons, there's an issue in a country uh, or the dynamics of a sector changes. Um, if a company is heavily indebted, uh, the banks frequently step away um, and, and cause really existential crises for companies. So, so you'll see a huge focus on balance sheet strengths. For us, so, and, and on a see-through basis, uh, our, our companies are actually sitting on net cash that gives them the flexibility in tough times, whatever it may be, whether it's COVID, recessions, uh, political coups that we've had from time to time across the region over the last quarter of a century. There were some uh, changes proposed to the Trust uh, earlier this week. Could you talk us through those? And were those changes, have they been proposed in an, in an attempt to tackle the trust's discount and um, you know and also widen its appeal with retail investors yes a, 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 a bit of everything there it, it's really a, a, a modernization it's a trust that's uh, that's been going as i say over 25 years um and and it's undergone various changes of market capitalization level uh, that it can invest in. Of course, as markets have have grown, what what happens to be a smaller company on day day one of the trust, it was a company under two hundred and fifty million dollars, and up until today, that's that's gone up to up up to one and a half billion. So so we were broadening the scope, uh, still to focus on small caps, but but not put a particular uh, level on it, just making sure we still um, uh, focus on small caps. Uh, we've increased the dividend, which is partially, uh, to your point, uh, to appeal to the retail market more. So the, the dividend is is increasing by you know, doubling uh, in the year ahead. Um, uh, again, we've been reducing management fees as well so, to make that more attractive, um, and that's steadily happened again since day one, so that's come down. Uh, and then to improve the marketability of the shares, we're doing a share split. Um, uh, and then also uh, there's a potential tender offer uh, out, in, out in the future, uh, should things not work out. So all this is... 
really to make things far more attractive for the investor, whether it be a retail investor or indeed a, an, an institutional investor, and allow us the flexibility, hopefully, to continue giving the returns we've we've given over the years. One of the um, themes in the trust is to um, which it seeks to profit from is the rising demand for aspirational consumer goods. Could you uh, name a couple of stock examples that fit into that theme? Yes, there's a broad theme. We've been playing the uh, the, the growing wealth uh, of of Asia, so the the development of Asia, uh, where more and more people move up into middle classes, uh, spending habits change. Uh, so at one level, uh, uh, that can be simplistically moving from the street stalls to uh, to supermarkets. Um, it can be uh, food habits changing. So, for example, we have a, a milk company uh, in uh, in India, Ultra Jaya, where, where traditionally milk has not featured as part of a diet, uh, or a big part of a diet, uh, but now as uh, as as a country such as Indonesia gets richer, uh, those habits change, and you see more and more milk and milk products being consumed. Uh, similarly, one of our recent holdings in China is a pet food company. Uh, as as the Chinese start having pets, and and of course pets pets need feeding, so 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 it can be those types of themes as well as traditional uh, retail themes. Um, a lot of the retail side is now taking place through the internet. So, um, so our largest holding is, in fact, uh, your your listeners won't won't know the company in particular. Momo, when I when I say the name Momo in Taiwan, won't mean a lot to people. But when you say it's the Amazon of Taiwan, they'll immediately know what it means. Um, so that's been a clear play on uh, consumer habits and consumer spending. And are there any other key sectors or themes that you are focusing on at the moment in the Investment Trust? Yes, well, well related themes to the, the the growing wealth of the consumer is, is financials. Um, so traditionally, uh, the penetration of bank accounts in, in the lesser developed economies would, would have been low. Um, but as people get richer, they start bank accounts, savings, insurance, uh, investments. Uh, so we have uh, one of our large holdings is a, a small bank in uh, Indonesia, a bank OCBC NISP. Um, we have a, a similar holding in uh, Hong Kong, Da Sing Financial, which is one of the local banks with operations in China as well. Uh, so that's another play on uh, consumer uh, growth, uh, as indeed are property companies. And we have a variety of property companies uh, within the portfolio from from India uh, right, right, right through the region. Um, and, and then, of course, a big theme for Asia is uh, being a, a, a large manufacturing center for the world has been technology, uh, and, and Asia's really caught up tremendously at the cutting cutting edge of technology and is involved in uh, various supply chains and specialty areas of technology. So we have a 
um, a specialty uh, microscope uh, company, for example, in Korea. Um, yeah, we have a digital advertising company in India. Uh, so a whole mix of exciting companies. And looking ahead to 2022, what's your outlook for the Asia-Pacific region? And could you name one reason to be cheerful and one reason to be fearful? <laughs> yes, probably more than one <laughs> for each, to be honest. Um, well, one reason to start with the cheerful ones. Um, we, we're, we, we always worry about things going wrong, which is kept us performing as we as, as we have been so we don't go in starry-eyed into investments uh, but of course looking at the region you've still got that long-term huge growth potential uh, from from lesser developed uh, uh, economies uh, a great entrepreneurial spirit across the region uh, valuations that are still very reasonable. So we're talking about the portfolio being on about 15 times earnings uh, with, as I say, a very, very strong underlying balance sheet. Um, so that's a lot of reason to get excited uh, and various reasons to worry. Um, I mean, in part COVID and, and what's happening there. Um, although I like to think we're through the worst of it, so so we should be seeing recovery. Uh, but again, things that we've been waiting for for years to happen uh, on, in a global sense, uh, rising interest rates uh, might might well cut appetites for for markets generally. But I think again, when you look at the small caps, there's so much potential within the small caps that I, I like to think some of the negatives uh, will affect them far less than they will the broader market, which has been very much driven by big investment flows. Whereas the small caps have been a, a very specialist area uh, with only a few players in that market. And finally, a question we ask all the Fomanja guests that we have on the podcast. Do you personally invest in the trust that you manage, the Aberdeen Standard Asia Focus Investment Trust? Yes, fortunately, uh, I've been an investor from day one, so I've I've enjoyed the uh, sort of ma mass massive rise, and and I haven't sold any shares uh, since day one. So I have, from memory, a little over a hundred thousand shares, which is a substantial part of my my net wealth. And when was day one? Day one was 26 years ago. I'm trying to remember when, when exactly it was. I think July 26 years ago. Wow. Great. Well, um, Hugh, really nice to speak to you. Um, and thank you very much for your time. Great. Many thanks, Kyle. That's it for this episode. Please do check out ii.co.uk for the latest fun spotlight. There's also a lot more funds, investment trust, and ETF content. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Please do spread the word. Um, you can like and subscribe. We'll be back in a couple of weeks for our final episode of 2021, which promises to be a cracker, as my guest will be Jonathan Davis, author of the Investment Trusts Handbook. <laughs>